Hello and welcome to Date Your Ego, Marry Your Soul podcast. I'm your host, Serafina, and I am an ego and soul enthusiast. We can no longer be strangers to our egos and how they function. So come and join me as we find out why and how this philosophy of dating your ego but marrying your soul is true and useful for you. This season, the ecstatic season, about parenting and children would not be complete in its inquiry without a soulful dialogue around being child-free. And what do you know? I found the exact right Buddhist teacher to talk to me about being child-free in the modern world. Crystal Gandrit is a multidisciplinary artist, a Vajrayana Buddhist teacher, an all-round soulful, beautiful, eloquent human being. And her wisdom is yours to imbibe in this episode. So without further ado, let's listen in. Hello, Crystal. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well today, actually. I'm pleased that the sun is out and um, it's, uh, <laughs> um, it's a busy time for me, but I kind of feel oddly like I have space around what I need to do, <laughs> which is not always the case, but I enjoy it when it happens. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, um, welcome to my show. I'm really pleased you could be here. Um, could we just start by learning a bit about you and how you would describe yourself? Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, the first thing I would say is that I often go out of my way to avoid having to describe myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something I feel um, adept at doing or particularly good at. And over the years, I've actually come to know that about myself. You know, when I was younger, I sort of thought that the way to be an effective human being was to, you know, have your like elevator pitch and your like definition of yourself. And you could say like, I'm this and I'm this and I'm that. And that somehow that would empower you. Mm -hmm. But every time I tried to do it, I could see that it did for other people. But every time I tried to do it, it would just kind of, well, it wouldn't work really. I mean, it would kind of, be like I felt like a failure at trying it, but also it didn't seem true, no matter what I said. But there are some things that over the course of time have come to be like they've withstood the test of time. And um, I love that you say that you're an artist, because I think an artistic sensibility or a certain like way of looking at the world that's both curious and aesthetics as a, as a profound path and a desire to, ha to communicate this sort of interaction between the sense perceptions and mind and the outside world that drives artists is, is definitely something that's been true of me over time. So I guess I would say that, uh, uh, you know, I, I can I say with some confidence that I'm a writer um, and that I have a very loose definition of what that means. So I say experimental writer a lot of the time, which mm -hmm. doesn't say anything either because like could mean anything but it often has an artistic a, a very like deeply artistic component to it and it has to do with the three-dimensional world it'll be public art installation or in a gallery or it it takes on this kind of embodiment so people often think of it as a writer as someone who writes things down on a page and then they're somehow published which does happen but 
much more since very young, the question has been like, why isn't the phenomenal world a book was sort of my question and still is my question. Oh, interesting. That's, that's the first time I've heard someone describe it that way, but it's very apt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other thing I would say of myself that I can say with some confidence is that for whatever reason, I seem to be a Vajrayana Buddhist and have been for a very long time. <laughs> it doesn't really seem to go away. I tried to be a Zen practitioner for a few years long ago. Uh -huh. I loved it. I mean, it was extraordinarily helpful to me, but uh, somehow I always end up in this kind of wild uh, world of Tibet-influenced uh, shamanistic-like Buddhism. Uh, those would be the things that uh, seem to be true over time. Okay. And I like all of them. And I find each of them very interesting. And that's what drew me to you. So thank you for that. I would like to talk about uh, Vajrayana Buddhism and find out what it is about. I practice Mahayana Buddhism mm -hmm. here in the UK. Yes. And uh, I've been studying it, well, Buddhism as such for the last seven years. It would be good to start off this chat just because I am a Buddhist and you are a Buddhist to understand from you what Vajrayana Buddhism is and how it's different from Hinayana, Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. What uh, tradition do you practice Mahayana Buddhism in? I practice, um, we chant the heart of the Lotus Sutra. It's Nichiren Buddhism. Yes, Namya Horenge Kyo. That's right. Which I did as a child. My parents were spiritual materialists, and so I got to be everything when I was a kid. And that was one of the things we did. <laughs> oh, wow. That's excellent. It's kind of like my background, my well, but it was split. So my dad is a businessman and my mom was the spiritual person. So we were kind of pulled apart, but it's kind of all mixed in there now. And I like that term, spiritual materialists. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, somehow you can buy it or it'll improve you, the self-improvement plan, all of that. Vajrayana Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism. It's just with a slight um, emphasis. There's a, there's a slight difference in emphasis. And uh, the Buddha taught three times, or it is traditionally said that he turned the wheel of the Dharma, or the teachings of profound truth, on three separate occasions. And the first was the Hinayana, which is the foundational vehicle, and it has to do with behaving. I know you know all of this, I'm just saying it anyway. It has to do with behaving well and not bothering other people and kind of like, uh, attending to your personal situation in a very deep way, a very profound way. And it has uh, an attention or a mind emphasis upon the inherently empty nature of self, which sounds very negative to a Western mind and very positive to many people in the East or, or in a more Oriental-ish mind, um, which can really mean anything. An Orientalish mind can be in the West, and a Westerner can hold that a lot, and it goes the other way as well. But uh, with the Hinayana, the emphasis is upon realizing that this experience is not permanent. It does not have the three marks of existence. Mm -hmm. Not, uh, I mean, it, it does have the three marks of existence, one of them being no self. It is impermanent. You cannot find where the inherent self is. Hmm. The experience is um, fundamentally, for a lot of our lives, or any life, an animal life or a plant life, 
more and more they're doing studies on that as well, it's true that they we experience stress, suffering, yeah. a sense of stressfulness to our being alive. Yeah. But also, of course, there's joy as well. And then the logical extension of the Hinayana, the foundational vehicle, yana means vehicle, is the Mahayana, which is often translated as the greater vehicle. And that's a little unfortunate because it kind of like gets pitted against the Hinayana as if like, you know, the Hinayana is less. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, it's just a different stage of evolution. Right, and also like just a different emphasis and the emphasis of, of the Mahayana being greater is actually more like more heart opening. Mm. It goes from a kind of like attend to yourself and behave yourself, try not to cause trouble, including to yourself. And then this very natural realization that as humans, particularly, but also animals and evidently plants now, we reach out to other. We go, well, if, if it's true of me that I experience three marks of existence, it is also true of everything else. So the emphasis on the Mahayana is the inherently empty nature of all of reality, meaning that it's very interdependent. Hmm. It has no qualities. It's just that it's completely interconnected. The one thing cannot exist without all other things through all of space and time. Mm-hmm. So we're all responsible from the beginning to the end of everything for everything. Is <laughs> one way of putting that. It's a very, very big view of the Mahayana, but you know, that's... Buddhism does not pull punches ever, which is one of the things I like about it. So the, the Mahayana is emptiness of, of, of self and other. And it has uh, the sense of like, I'm, I'm here to be of service. Yeah. I'm here to help. And, and so is everything else. So then the Vajrayana is often described as like the booby prize. You're so stupid that you cannot realize the Hinayana and the Mahayana. So now you need to pull out the big guns and really work on the, the sense perceptions right. and the mind. Sometimes, not always true at all, but I, I do notice that people who are particularly neurotic often right. end up in the Vajrayana because they need a lot of help. <laughs> they need a lot of, of tools. And so when the Buddha taught, the first time he taught the Hinayana, the second time was the Mahayana, and the third time was also the Mahayana. So we often say that the three turnings are the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana, but that is actually not the case. The two teachings after the Hinayana are both Mahayana teachings, and the Vajrayana is a later elaboration upon Mahayana. And it comes through the marrying along the silk route of uh, shamanistic or indigenous peoples' traditions. So there was definitely Vajrayana Buddhism almost right away in India that looked mm-hmm. like tantric Indian Buddhism. And then it moved up through the Silk Route and it also went to Persia. It went to the Himalayas, obviously, and China, where it interacted with uh, the Tao, and mm-hmm. then on into Japan, where it interacted with Shinto, and, and then all over the world. And what we're beginning to see now, it's taken a very long time in some ways for this to happen, but anthropologically not that long, that in the West, it is beginning to interact with earlier traditions, sort of pre-Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian traditions, like, uh, dare I say things like Druidism? I mean, I don't really mean that, but it's, it's more like we're 
beginning to kind of make a connection between the early Western practices and how they interact with Tibetan Buddhism as well. Mm. And what's wonderful about all of Buddhism is that it's adaptive. It's voracious and adaptive. So no matter where it goes in the world, it changes and, and in some ways has very little issue with changing, which is different than the other major religions of the world, which try to change the people. Yes. Um, it's more like dogmatic and not doctrinal. Buddhism obviously does have doctrine and can be very dogmatic, given who's you know, teaching it or navigating it. Yeah. Right. But it tends to sort of absorb the native traditions mm-hmm. and people's, the, the wisdom of the people who are coming to sit and be with themselves. So it, is, it has an internal integrity, but it is also quite fluid. And Vajrayana Buddhism is a particular kind of anthropologically alive manifestation of the Mahayana. Mm. And it works with the sense perceptions, mind, mm-hmm. very much so with intellect. Intellect is not considered an issue. The sense, the sense experiences altogether are the vehicle to your awakening. They are not something to be quelled. They are not something to be tamed necessarily, but they are something to come to know intimately. And when we intimately know them, they tend to calm down. But whereas with the Mahayana, we want to help, in the Vajrayana, we want to help you to help yourself. Mm, You hold the wisdom yourself. Only you know what you need, really. Yes. Oh my God, that is so powerful. Just in 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 saying all of that, it's it's sort of cut down to what really matters for me. As you go along in your spiritual journey, you come to that conclusion is what I found from reading autobiographies or reading, studying Buddhist texts. In the winter of last year, I studied the Bardo of Dying what you said about when you get to know your tendencies, did you say, well, they lose their control over you? Oh my God, that is so powerful. And yes, I do want to come back to that. Thank you for speaking to all of that. It's, it's such a great stuff. It's getting really fired up. <laughs> I know, it's very exciting to me. <laughs> <laughs> to me too. <laughs> but this this season on my show is called the ecstatic season. And it's all about how we somehow find a way around our neuroses with this thing we call we call love. And we tend to do that most effectively, I find, in the mother-child or parent-child format, just because I think we've been socialized, one, into understanding that that is the ultimate. But also, there's never that much energy going through a human body than during childbirth. So there's never any bigger experience that the everyday man can relate to. And so the reason I called it the ecstatic season is because there's this ecstasy, there's this element of ecstasy to this love that you feel as a new parent or as a new mother, despite the pain that sort of propels you into this world of deeper layered relationships not just with your child, but with the entire world, you know? And I think that's, that's a kind of ecstasy because you're taking in the pain and the pleasure and it's becoming something bigger than you and you're expanding into it. And I really wanted to talk to, it was, it was within my heart to talk to a Buddhist 
teacher about human relationships, you know, specifically the ones we have with our parents. And that's when I was searching away and I found your three-part lecture series, which I just loved. And uh, that was the one on love and loneliness, if I'm correct. There was something you said at the start. We'll talk about it as much as you want, really, because uh, listeners can uh, put a link on to uh, your bios. Listeners can go and have a look at it there, listen to it there. You said that we are always in relation to our parents, whether they're here or not. Mm. What did you mean by that? If we can start off from there and go wherever you like, really. Yeah. Well, I think it would depend upon the day how I would answer that question, because uh, there's so much there. But what comes to mind at the moment is very early. Our ve- we're in the womb, and we are prof- that's all we know. And we're <laughs> profoundly affected by it. And, and the qualities of the womb, and it, it's what we hear from the outside. It's the feeling, momentary feeling tone of, of our mother and how well she is able to attend to herself and her nervous system is affecting us from the very beginning when we're just that little kind of like shrimp looking thing and the nervous system is beginning to form and how she is is affecting that nervous system and that that is imprinted on us for the rest of our lives we will never ever be any we, you know like however that is is woven into the fabric of our experience for the rest of our lives. And that doesn't mean that we cannot heal from things if it was very negative or if later things, you know, if the nervous system was developing in a particular way and then there was trauma and it uh, interrupted evolution in a particular way in the nervous system. With all of that, you know, the more work they do on that, particularly in the realm of somatic trauma healing and all of that, it's it's so congruent with Buddhism because uh, every Buddhist, yourself, I would assume included, knows that your brain changes by attending to the nervous system. But that early imprinting is of our mother and everyone that came before our mother. And it also is in relationship to the, the other people who are around her. So if there was a father around or another kind of parent or other people, you know, if she's pregnant in a war-torn country or a peaceful country. All of that is also affecting it. And so you're being imprinted by your family and then your society right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do. It's pre-cognitive and it's pre-everything. Mm-hmm. And so that is your fundamental, your primordial map. And you work with that map for the rest of your life. And for those of us who are extraordinarily lucky, and you do have to be extraordinarily lucky, lots of other things come into play that help us. And artists do this. This is what artists do. We delve into and investigate that roadmap forever and ever and ever, and how that leads to communications of one kind or another, and how that leads to our point of view. And and then we get curious about other points of view, et cetera. And and the mind-body complex can get bigger and bigger and more expansive and hold more of experience Mm -hmm. so that we don't necessarily look away, which is a quality of of the Mahayana, Vajrayana very much, and a a quality of being an artist. So I think that might have been part of, of what I meant. Right. But we're learning about love in a very deep way, right away. Mm. And then as we come out, 
like what we, I mean, the, can you imagine the download in the first days of life? And a, a lot of it has to do with what we will later call love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, how we will perpetuate it as well. You know, right. A lot of this season has been about source process work, about going back right to the source of you how were you born and how, what was that like? Who was around? What happened? Um, so the season definitely highlights a lot of those issues. So I'm so glad uh, you spoke to them. Getting to know love in a very deep way is quite a journey each of us makes in those first few days of life. Putting love into context later on than I have realized becomes essential to our personal growth uh, as adults. Would you agree? What is love, really? I mean, we've understood it to be one thing, and then, you know, oh, it kind of changes, and then there's compromise, and then it's becoming something else, and oh, my God, you got to let go of everything you knew. <laughs> and it's a mess. <laughs> the, uh, the Zen teacher, John Tarrant, describes love as pure attention. So it's just about seeing and being seen on its most basic level and its most evolved level. So that there is, you know, the thing we call unconditional love is that, you know, we don't have, we we hope for not being saddled with someone else's neuroses and expectations. Of course, we always are. But if there's enough of this, like, I just experience you, not my idea of you, or what I'd like you to be, or what I need, and I'm going to try to get it out, you know, all of the stuff we do, the contorting we do, to have our needs met. When that drops away, and meditating is practicing that dropping away, then what happens is real love. We just see, experience, hear, smell, taste, touch. And with a baby, I haven't had one, as you know, we'll talk about that. But I do have a niece and a nephew that I held right when they came out. I was there when they were born. And, and you're just with it. There is no, like, this baby should be different. There's no, like, I don't like this baby. <laughs> do you, will this baby love me? None of that. It's just so pure. Mm. And that is, that's love. Mm. And everything else is social. It's socialized or, you know, neurotic, or how you want to put it. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that's fine. We go in and out of our most awakened state. Should, we should go in and out of it in order to learn more about it. But you really get slapped in the face by this idea of love when you're expecting the other being, the recipient, or yourself, or both of you to be different mm. rather than open to communication. Hmm. Communication can lead to change, but that that's not, uh, that may be an expression of love, but pure love is just bare attention. Mm. Wow. So simple and so powerful. And you're right. When, when that baby arrives, it's, there's no choice. There's no choice but to feel that love. And I, it, it, I find that through your life, you keep looking for that in different places, that moment of clarity and that moment of 
purity of love. You keep looking for it in different places. So it's it's really important to have that context to what love is. I do want to talk about being child-free, you know, the ego and the soul of the mindset of the individual uh, that can fathom the wisdom in such a choice. I think I want to start by addressing uh, judgment because I think it's the first thing most of my friends and even I have encountered around the issue of being child-free. Now, when it comes to judgment, would you agree the only way is through? <laughs> well, it, uh, what do you mean by the only way is through? Could you elaborate upon that a bit? As you were saying, you know, pure love is one thing, and then the rest of it is just socialization. So you fall in love with someone, you both have a relationship, and then your socialization will tell you you have to have a child. And then you, if anyone chooses not to, God forbid, uh, there's a lot of judgment that comes their way, not only from their immediate society, but from themselves as well. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you have to travel through that judgment to really hold true to your instinct about the issue and your need or your want or your even your own wisdom that is telling you to be child-free. I mean, for me, my, my, my inquiry has led me to believe you date your ego, but marry your soul. <laughs> and I'm obviously exploring that around the issue of being child-free. Uh-huh. So it was, yeah, it was just, you know, would you agree that you have to get through a, a, a thick layer of judgment to then finally connect with the wisdom? Well, I think it would depend upon who you were, you know, some people because of their style and their socialization, the way they were raised, they can remain closer to their inherent wisdom, to what they know of themselves, mm-hmm. or for whatever reason, they just came out that way, or I don't know what. And But yeah, for a lot of us, we have to earn knowing what we know. What, what We have to kind of go through a process, almost like a heroine's journey, in order to discover what we already knew. That's what every fairy tale is really about, in a way, and <laughs> Buddhism is about. Yeah, I mean, in the ideal manifestation of judgment, you're working with judgment as part of your path, would be to go into it, to get curious about it, to really look at it, look at it in yourself, Look at the ways in which, to use a psychological term, you have interjected. You know, someone came at you with, you're not a woman if you don't have a child, and you grab that idea and you just put it in you, whether it was true or not, you know? Like, we do that all the time, particularly women, I think, are trained from a very early age to go like, okay, I'll take your word for it, (laughs) rather than know what I know. Judgment is interesting. It's very much a light cue to pay attention oh, I'm judging someone else or I'm judging myself, bing, let's look into that. Is what I'm saying true? Is it true that people should have children or people shouldn't have children or it's wrong to this or that? You know, like, and you can very quickly come to the Zen state of the only don't know mind. You know, I I actually don't really know, (laughs) but I can know my truth. I can know what's in me and right for me. Yes. And, and, and it's, it's all right to sit with that, you know, and to really see it through. We don't have a lot of encouragement, again, in our society. We don't have a lot of, we don't know, you know, it's very difficult to find out how. Mm, mm. How do I sit with it? 
when I was a kid, I was just supposed to go to school and perform. And, you know, then I became an adult and I'm just supposed to work and perform. <laughs> <laughs> where I sit and try to like think and know things. And again, some people are much better at it than other people. But those of us who are trying to lead an authentic life, that's very much a part of it. Like, how do I listen? How do I spend time mm. I with this without knowing? You know, being comfortable not knowing and being comfortable being confused, being comfortable being uncomfortable is not easy. Mm-hmm. I think that's primarily because we've been taught since we were very, very young that everything needs to be in order. Yes. Everything has to be figured out. Uh, you don't want to be doing that. Oh, my goodness. Where's that going to lead you? Right. And it's so ingrained that just sitting with yourself and your choices in the 21st century in a society where we have a lot of choice is crippling. It's crippling on a soul level. It's crippling on every egoic level I can think of. And it's, 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 it's difficult to get through. And you need um, courageous spiritual warriors, you would call them. Yeah get through it. Exactly. You do. Yeah. I want to touch upon the article you wrote about being child-free in the modern world. I thought it was very refreshing. And in there, you talk about having uh, a choice and you say that it always confuses us somehow. I think there's certainly a shift these days from why not have children to why have children. You know, I'd like to discuss that a bit with you. Absolutely. Well, it, things have changed, and they've changed rather quickly. I, unfortunately, I think that you could probably draw a correlation between that change in attitude and, and what's happening to the environment. It's something mm. very frightening what, what will happen to the human race in, in the coming years. And that report that came out what, that posited that possibly by 2050, mm. we not sustain life. That, that affects my niece and nephew. That affects children, you know, like... It isn't a slow decline, <laughs> if that's the case. It's a very rapid decline. So I do think that that's been part of it. There's been this kind of underlying other force that's influencing how we think about having children that was much more theoretical, even in the 70s. You know, there was this whole kind of population growth theory, and I don't know what they all were, but, you know, it could fascinatingly, within uh, a not very long period, uh, go to the other way. You know, my uh, interactions I had with people when I was very much of childbearing years that was so judgmental that I wasn't having children may go completely 360, you know, in a couple of years. Mm. So it might be like, why are you pregnant? <laughs> you know, like, wh- who do you think you are that you can, you know, propagate the human race both into the predicted disaster that's coming, but also um, taking resources from others and all of that. But that's all, you know, I don't, that's external and very um, dependent upon a lot of things that we know nothing about. Mm. But I do think you're right that the, 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 those are kind of reasons perhaps why the conversation is changing and changing pretty quickly. Um, and then there are other contributing factors, like women of my generation, who, who, because we're getting to the point where we're almost past childbearing years, there's a lot of data on us. And particularly in the late 60s and early 70s, and I was born in 1971, there's a whole kind of like 
subsection of that woman population that did not have children way more than ever before. Mm-hmm. And we don't know about uh, what comes after because, you know, those people are still, it's still possible that they will have children. So, you know, the data is still out. But I also think that, that perhaps I have this little pet theory that people like you and mm-hmm. lots of people in the world are doing radical self-work they're doing radical investigation into the nature of reality. And it doesn't necessarily look like they're a Buddhist or they're a yogi or they're whatever we've decided is spiritual or not spiritual, but they're on a genuine path. And I hate to use this phrase because it's so loaded, but I think that the silent majority or they're, they're, it's a lot of people and their modus operandi is to mind their own business. Mm. They're not out there like judging and just put this in this like black and white dialogue and polemics constantly. And yet they're deeply affecting how our culture is evolving. And there in that realm, we do kind of like respect other people's way because mm. we respect our own. When we respect our own life and what we're doing, we naturally are more respectful of others. So that might be influencing why the conversation is changing into something more accommodating and understanding of why we wouldn't have children. Mm. And now I have a lot of, you know, when I was 30, it was like, when are you going to have kids? And now I have a lot of conversations that are along the lines of, um, yeah, I could have not had children or I wasn't sure. You know, it becomes much more ambivalent and people are much more willing to be in, in the ambiguity of whether they have children or not than when I was younger, even, uh, I would say, 15 years ago. So that, you're right. I mean, it's very interesting. Something is changing. I'm interested in the wisdom behind that decision and how such a big choice makes forces evolution in a human being more than anything else uh, mm-hmm. that can happen. And uh, so, I mean, I just wanted to talk to you about that. You know, is I think I think being child-free is a is a is a soulful choice, and it's at a karmic level. My mom would kid when she was uh, a lot younger because her and my father separated. That uh, people who have a lot of karma to pay have kids and people who don't don't have kids <laughs> and so I was like oh my god is that why you had three of us I said yeah you had so much karma yeah yeah I mean that may be true I don't know but I would also say that a lot of the people I know who are more consciously child-free because there are obviously many other reasons why people don't have children including that they're not very thoughtful and just want to be, <laughs> have more money or something. Flying first class everywhere. <laughs> yeah, which I don't know about that one. But but there are, you know, for many, I was thinking about women I know and couples and, and men too who who don't have children. It's often because they did feel that they, in some way or another, they're very aware of something in the society. Maybe it's environmental or uh, about resources and or they're, they're like me or, or some other people I know who kind of felt like they had to grow up really quickly. They, they, like my friend Sally didn't have children. Her mother had four boys after her and she raised them. Mm. 
Mm. It's quite a bit older than I was. And I, I, she was like in her fifties and I was in my early thirties. And I said, why don't you have children? And she said, Oh, I, I did. I already did that. I feel a little bit like that too. Like I have, it's not the same. I know that I would never imagine that it's the same, but I have like a real motherly relationship with quite a few people in my life mm-hmm. where I get the opportunity to be nurturing. It's just, I'm, I'm having a different emphasis in this lifetime about where that nurturing goes and how it manifests. And my sister, much to my surprise, had two children. I thought she wouldn't have any. She said she wasn't going to, but she did. She's obviously working with a more direct relationship to mothering. I think the path I took has been labeled with a lot of other people's judgment and neuroses around that. A lot of it has to do with just plain old fear of, you know, the the lineage not existing, frankly, like the, the lineage won't continue or that the human race will continue or you know, who can you be without children, all those sorts of questions. And, uh, and I know more about those, I know more about the answers to those questions than someone who does have children. And I know less about having children. But I would also say that it's a little bit like being any minority, you know more about the majority than the majority knows about you. (laughs) Or about themselves, in some cases. (laughs) Right, because you had to like, think about it and, and deal with it and notice it. And yeah. And and they're, you know, they're part of something that's sanctioned and approved. And so there's less, perhaps less investigation. Yeah. Although the philosopher who wrote a fabulous book on having children, it's called Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. Oh, wow. That's powerful. It's I highly recommend it to everyone on the planet. It's difficult to keep an open mind during it, but he's a philosopher. He's from the University of Cape Town. He's relentlessly rigorous in his investigation of this question. And he has four children of his own, which I love. (laughs) It just made me so happy. It was like, oh, right. You know, like you can be, you know, a a mess, (laughs) basically. (laughs) You don't, you know, like this is complicated. Our human lives are dissonant. And they're mostly gray area. And, you know, you can have much insight and do something else and have much insight from that as well. And they can seem to be at odds with each other when, in fact, who's to say they're at odds with each other? Mm-hmm. Only you know. Yeah. And, and every lifetime you have different experiences, don't you, to polish you up. <laughs> that's, that's what Nichiren uh, Buddhism teaches you. You're constantly polishing your state of life until you get to that ninth consciousness, which is just pure energy things keep happening to you so you're able to do your human revolution so that there's so much beauty joy and peace inside you that you attract the same and you're like a ripple effect and I feel in this lifetime you know these are the things that are happening to me and these are the things that are happening to you and part of it is uh, uh, being Buddhist and part of it is uh, being a woman and part of it is being child-free or for me being a mom and being Buddhist and being a banker and all of these things, they're just happening to us. And we've somehow got to figure, figure out that other bit, which takes me to my next question to you uh, of um, these two phrases that I keep hearing or these two messages that I keep hearing. And of course, I might not be hearing them correctly and you please correct me if I'm not, but treating everything that happens to you or that happens inside of you as energy, as just pure energy. 
becoming curious rather than defensive, or in my case, freaked out. Treating everything as energy and becoming curious rather than defensive. Uh, these are two messages I keep getting from Vajrayana Buddhist teachings. Uh, I do want to accept this isn't to rob us from our human experience, but to refine it. Mm. Would you agree? Well, nothing can rob you of your human experience. Mm. I mean, what would rob you of that would be death. That would be a Vajrayana view, that this is all pure, it's perfect, everything that's arising, which is very difficult to wrap your mind around, particularly if you or others that you're connected with either in reality or just through heart connection are suffering. It's very, very difficult to, to kind of sit with pure perfection, which is, is a, a Vajrayana, specifically a Vajrayana teaching. Mm -hmm. I would also say that another difference between the Vajrayana and the Mahayana is that there's no such thing as reaching enlightenment sometime in the future. Enlightenment is happening right now. You are awake right now, and it, can ha it happens in one lifetime, potentially. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be reborn. I mean, you, you probably will be reborn because that's also part of the nature of reality. It's like you throw something up in the air and it falls back down again. If that stopped happening, we could get really worried. The, you know, the energy will go forward. When, just because we die doesn't mean that that energy stops. That's quantum physics. It's not anything spiritual or interesting. It's just it will continue. However, you're awake right now. And we know that when it happens to us. And it's happened to, I would imagine, every human being on the planet. There may be exceptions to that. They might have to do with like psychopathology or extreme disability. I don't know. I mean, who could know all of that? But for most of us in the median, we have had many, many experiences of being awakened. The one you describe where your baby has just been born and you're holding them, you're awake. There you are. You're completely enlightened. You're a full Buddha in that moment. Mm. And so the striving issue or the issue of trying to, to have something happen called enlightenment is the surest way to never wake up because then you're not in the present. And it's only in the present that awakenment is the case. So it's just right here, right now, as it is. Whatever's happening right in this moment is all there is, and that's being a Buddha. So the path of, of that is, in fact, the, the being curious, being open to your experience. And part of training as a, as a meditator is in noticing. You don't even have to stop it it naturally becomes less powerful, this desire to say no to certain experiences. So, for example, we decide we want to meditate and we sit down and we notice that our mind is chaotic and nuts and that's fine because that's what our mind is like. It should be chaotic and nuts and if it, if it isn't, it probably means you're dead. But there's another kind of awareness that can pay attention to that. And we're strengthening that awareness. We're strengthening the awareness in meditating that sees the mind that is chaotic, sees the mind that goes, yes, I want more chocolate. No, I don't like that person. Oh, I don't care about that. Or I feel numbed out or depressed by that. Those are our three styles, passion, aggression, and ignorance. And so the Vajrayana says yes to all of that. 
yeah, really notice your passion. I really want that. Really notice and observe your aggression. I really hate that. Right. And it's much more difficult to notice our ambivalence or our ignorance, our depression, but that too. You go, oh yeah, right? Uh, yeah, right now I'm numb. I can't quite connect in with, with you know, the, the thought or the feeling. And that that pattern or that kind of way of attending is the path to realizing that you are inherently awake right now. So all the stuff that comes up that you like, don't like, or don't care about is very good news because that is the, the fuel that helps you realize you're awake. So there's no bad news in your afflictive personality, in your bad behaviors, quote unquote, in your addictions, in your things that you say cause you harm or trouble or pain. To say we don't like them is true, and there's no problem with that either. It's fine to not like that you feel like you need to drink two bottles of wine in a, in a night. But that, you know, like we can know that's an issue. Mm. Don't like then drink more wine. You go, okay, I have this very complicated relationship to wine. Sometimes I'm in passion. I want that. I want that. And sometimes I'm in aggression. No, that's bad. I shouldn't do that. And then sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can't deal. I'm just going to hide. And thereby we perpetuate something that you could label being an alcoholic. So if you pay attention to the cycle, the endless sort of cycling we do, and a self-improvement plan is you will stop the aggression part and you will be better. Or you will stop the passion part and you will be better. That is all self-aggression. But the, the wisdom part is, I am now going to pay pure attention to this. I'm going to love something like a craving for drinking, which scares the shit out of people. Mm. Because down that road, all hell breaks loose in our mind. Mm. That's been socialized to believe. But in fact, what happens is the buck stops here. Mm. I begin to realize things like, I need to take better care of myself. Obviously, I'm stressed. Uh, maybe I need to go to you know, AA meetings or get help in some other way or whatever. And so you naturally become less held by your confusion. And the more curious you become about that confusion, the more it opens up to you what's really going on or the wisdom underneath it. Mm. And I know people who've suffered from very profound addiction and they describe it as when they decided to do what I'm talking about now, this thing that was going to kill them is suddenly a profound offering they have to the world, profound wisdom. Mm. That, and, they, and they didn't learn it through improving themselves. They, they, they gained the wisdom or they discovered the wisdom they already had through looking at it and being curious about it. Mm. Learning, it sounds so counterintuitive, but that in fact, they love it. They can love this underlying need that they have. Mm. Very much that is a Vajrayana manifestation, or I just described a kind of Vajrayana-like display. And the other one was, remind me of what the second thing was. Uh, was... I think you've spoke to becoming curious rather than defensive, mm -hmm. treating everything as energy. Like everything that comes up, you know, everything you were describing, because what it would do to 
a normal human being would be, oh my God, this is happening. Oh my God, it's never happened. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh my God, someone said it's wrong. And this happened to this one. They were in the news and that happened. And oh my God, you know, it's just, oh my God, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We're in a state of heightened kind of stress. And Mm. yeah, it's very complicated. Well, and again, what meditation allows us to begin to do is listen to, hear the narrative of, oh my God, you know, this is wrong. And then, and then we, can, we get underneath that and we go, okay, what's going on underneath there? And often we find that, the, that it's very difficult to label the underlying thing that's happening. It's very difficult even to talk about it. And it usually is some kind of electrical or energetic phenomenon that's happening, we could say, in our body, but we don't even know that. We, I mean, it's probably reciprocal. It's probably some kind of relationship between the outside and the inside world. And then we get into the issue that maybe there is no outside or inside world. But before we go there, there's this sense of like energy is arising. So instead of having to be in the pathology of I'm angry right now and that is bad and I must stop being angry, I must learn to control my anger, blah, blah, blah. What are you doing in that? You're feeding the anger. The anger is just like getting what it wants, which is this kind of negative food. Hmm. But when we go, oh, yeah, I, you, I can call this anger or I used to call this anger. Now I'm like, because I am more present to my moment-to-moment experience, I feel this rising up and the, the rising up of it has incredible clarity in it. It's incredibly true what's happening. And it go, it, it's sort of, I mean, you often hear the word transmutation in the Vajrayana realm. What happens when we pay better, higher quality attention to what we would call anger as it arises is it offers us what it needs to tell us in that moment. And it may be, it's usually something like, I don't feel comfortable right now, or I feel threatened, or I'm afraid, or I just really don't like this. And, and then the, even that becomes a moment of investigation. Okay, uh, so this anger is rising up, and it's rising up because there's something happening right now that I don't like. Well, where does that come from? Where does the I don't like come from? And, and you know, so it, it isn't navel-gazing, but it is minding our own business. Hmm. And, and kind of like, it's not putting aside our conditioning that we've learned that like anger is bad, but it's kind of like knowing that that's one of the players in this without fully believing it. So meditation in part um, makes us troublemakers because we stop believing things. <laughs> Everything we were told is like, well, I don't know. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, in the enlightened form, anger becomes clarity. Mm. And it becomes like this energy is arising and it means something needs to change right now. Mm. And then there's a kind of immediate, the skillful means of the Vajrayana would be, and what needs to change right now is you may need to take yourself out of the situation. Yeah. I I may need to stop being uh, nice when I don't want to be nice. I may need to not pick up, not take that person's call or 
not engage in that, you know, yeah. conversation anymore. It It's just having the courage in that moment to recognize how much you're actually harming yourself. And because you can't express it, you're going to drink that or smoke that or eat that. Or, or buy that. Yeah. Or buy that. Yeah. yeah. Or, or yell at that other person, you know, I mean, there's so many ways that it comes out and that's the, that's the freeing thing of Buddhism for me. Cause one of the things of the Lotus Sutra is that earthly desires are enlightenment and, and that, you know, Yep. They are the food for your enlightenment. And it, as long as you can accept them and accept yourself as a Buddha, they will take you to your enlightenment. But you got to have that mindset firstly and that open heart and that possibility. Uh, we're so hardwired by the time we're 21, that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, that it takes a long time before you actually can think about these things because there's jobs and there's relationships and there's certain ways to do them. And wow. I mean, I think, you know, when you were talking about that 2050 report, of course, I do think of these things since I've had my baby. But I think if there's a way to meet that sort of a time when the world ends, it would be discussing Dharma teachings or meditating or, you know, because you you actually never end as you said you come back as the same energy where you left and i think that's the beauty of buddhism and i was born into a spiritual family that's based in hinduism and uh, you know very accomplished meditative practices uh we also had rituals and uh, we studied sanskrit and we learned the vedas and we did all of that yeah. the self analysis and self acceptance as a being that's capable of enlightenment in this moment is for me the phenomenon that is buddhism mm. and i'm so blessed to have met it because it's really it really shifts something inside you in a way that brings you closer to your true self yeah and it questions it's pretty radical in that it questions everything including things like i have to be peaceful or i have to accept or you know like you know, who knows, just that kind of curious, like meeting everything with a sort of, I don't know mine. Well, is that true? And and in the attending to the moment-to-moment unfolding of reality in relationship to the mind and the sense perceptions, we kind of find, it's sort of accidental even, that we are accepting more, or maybe we're more peaceful. Or if we're not more peaceful, isn't that interesting? Like, I've been meditating for, I don't know what it is now, like, five years or something and there's I'm not peaceful <laughs> how strange you know and if you're in it to win it basically in a way that's superficial like you're in it to kind of become more of something yeah rather than discovering your authentic life yeah. if, if you're if you if that kind of a phrase like to discover one's authentic life is much more open and and to many different versions of possibilities and maybe it will include being more peaceful and and accepting and kind and loving one hopes so but it's wow i'm just i'm just loving everything we're talking about all the exchange here is just wonderful I do ha- I do want to ask you if the show's title resonates with you <laughs> might be a silly question but you know what are your thoughts 
Well, uh, I have a, an emotional response to it, which I, I really is very positive. And what I like about it is that something about dating your ego is, is sort of playful. And it does have to do with the like kind of enjoying the earthly delights. Yeah. With no problem with. But it's also like sort of holding that a little light. You're not fully committing to that. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll date this thing, you know, this like, we've called it, we've labeled it something, a monolith, but really it's just the the five skandhas of form, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness. Okay. But so they're actually fractured. There is no real ego, but sure, you know, like I have an identity, I have a personality, and the thing, I'm sure you've noticed this about people who've been meditating a long time, they become more eccentric and more specific and weird, not less. They don't become sort of zoned out and pure and they, they are pure by nature, but they, they have um, like real personalities, mm. idiosyncratic. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. So that's kind of like the ego sort of getting a little wiggle room and it gets a little like permission yes. to be itself. And, and then the, the marrying of the soul is committing again to what is authentic. Mm. It, what it, what is there that might be dare I use the word it's a dirty word in Buddhism but what's real what's real yeah and and each of us has that for ourselves and and often what I would say by marry the soul is marry uh, I'm marrying my wisdom I'm marrying my knowing mm. from a wonkier point of view like I said with uh, ego there's no such thing as a soul in, in Buddhism it doesn't it isn't really a concept that exists because it would imply something existent. But I don't think you mean it that way. You mean it in the kind of wisdom knowing realm. You know, yeah. is fundamentally true. I, yeah, I was delighted by the. I'm by glad the, to hear. <laughs> it's kind of like my two parts coming together. You know, the east and the west, and my mom and my dad and my life all coming together. Love that. Well, that's art too. Like you know, you're onto something when it's like channeling all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the center. I can't move too much because it's all coming through me. Yeah, a lightning bolt. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, leads me on to something I'm so curious to hear about. A dream of drawing of everything. That's a, 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 an art installation you curated along with your partner. Is it? Yeah, my artistic collaborator is a woman named Nula Clark. She's a Nula painter. Clark, sorry. I met her in New York, but she's now practicing in, in Mayo in the west of Ireland. Yeah, and, and when Nuala and I met, neither of us were looking for a collaborator at all. I was writing and she was painting and I don't know what happened. You know, it was alchemy. We just ended up doing things together. And this was one of the things that we uh, did and continue to do. It's uh, an ongoing thing. It's on the internet because the internet is like the universe. It is infinite. And as long as we pay our bills, it, it can exist out there kind of expressing itself as this completely independent interrelated, infinite manifestations so we could add dreams forever and ever. And for some reason, both Nula and I are very dream-focused and very dream-influenced. And it's just gotten worse over the years for both of us. We're just more and more and more interested in both dream theory and science, which is getting more interesting and, and better all the time, but also the, the kind of like the, the real question, and it is a Buddhist question that it brings up again, of like, what is real? When we're dreaming, 
we don't know we're dreaming, and yet we're creating this entire world and this entire complex, surreal, psychotic thing. And it's fascinating. And we've decided, socially, we've decided that that's not real and this is real. Both Nuala and I, in our artistic practices, but also just by temperament, as you can tell, are like, well, who says? How do we know that? And of course, this is the main question of people who research dreams and onerologists and people who do dreaming practice as a path to realizing their inherently awakened nature, which is a real thing. It's dream yoga. Do it. There's a fabulous book called Dreaming Yourself Awake, which kind of tells you how to do it. It's a very practical sort of manual. So it sort of came out of that, really. Like, how could we bring these into some kind of uh, artistic manifestation? And it started out as a book proposal, and then it just became that we were like, it, but if, if it were a book, it would be like finite. And it would be like, you know, it couldn't just change and shift all the time. And then suddenly it's static. So what if we just loosen that up a lot? What would that be like? Mm. So we, we have a rule, which is there's no analysis. We do not analyze dreams. They are dreams as art or dreams as reflections of reality, not things to think about, not conceptual things. Although, of course, you would think about them and we do think about them, but it isn't, you know, like this means this and that means that. And it's like, I had this dream about bees making a shrimp. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Which is much more like art. You know, in, in art, we don't analyze. And it was an experience, really, because I, I took time out and I actually went through it and I felt whatever I felt. And I love the fact that there were two different, were they two different voices? And there were two different volumes and if you look at the artwork along with that and you go along that way it gives you that feeling of dreaming where everything's okay. happening everywhere that's great that's kind of what we're trying to go for yes <laughs> <laughs> okay so I was like pretty I was like okay <laughs> I gotta get on my show <laughs> yeah yeah well it's surreal you know it's an act of surrealism now, you are passionate about representing underrepresented Buddhist authors. Did I get that right? And yes, I have founded a, a press called Lionheart Press with um, a, another partner, Susan Piver, who runs an organization called the Open Heart Project. And Susan's written, I think, about 10 books now, um, very much on the Buddhist path. Her most recent one is The Four Noble Truths of Love, which you might be interested in. Oh, to apply to um, long-term relationships is her main emphasis in that book. It's lovely. I edited it actually. And so, what the reason we did that was because you know we've both been in the Buddhist and publishing world for many years now, and we felt kind of like frustrated and I would say even a little sidelined by our gender. And so the predominant voice in Buddhism up until about, you know, three months ago was um, very male, very energetically more masculine and hierarchical. And it had, it had this quality of, of like, there wasn't enough being published by and for women. And Lionheart isn't specifically just by and for women. So far it has been, although we're thinking about publishing a book written by a man about the Me Too movement. 
So from his point of view, and he's also a very serious um, Buddhist practitioner, but it, it kind of happened to sync up with things that were changing in society. So we can see before like the Too movement and whatever, but then when that started to happen, the floodgates were sort of opened and we ended up with, you know, like tons of submissions and people interested in, in what we were trying to do. And, and we describe it as wanting to um, give voice to the voices of the future. Right. So very much the Buddhist canon as it exists in the West, you know, it kind of started existing in the late 1800s. There were Germans who went into the East and came back with texts and started to translate them. And it, you know, but it was all very male. It was a male world. There were very few women, Alexandra Neal being an exception, but it just continued in that tradition. And through the 60s and the 70s, of course, there were women involved in uh, propagating the Buddhist Buddha Dharma in the West, but uh, just the vast majority, I mean, you know, it's like 93% of what's published is from a white male perspective. And more specifically, an East Coast of America gone to certain universities from certain kinds of backgrounds, mm-hmm. white male perspective, which has great value. And I learned a lot. I mean, I was educated by people like that. I'm profoundly grateful to them. But it is time, you know, it's well past time for us to move forward and get more voices involved who hold very different points of view on the Dharma that are equally valid, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the uh, inspiration behind Lionheart Press. Mm. It's amazing because when you change, your environment changes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know every 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 action that your life seems to have inspired or taken for me is coming across as something that has one of the very uh, powerful buddhist teachings behind it which is when you change your environment changes you know and earthly desires and enlightenment it's 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 such an honor to be in your presence and to talk to you because everything in your life is literally, you know, an example of Buddhist teaching. So I really love it. I need to come back to our topic of being child-free and for anyone living in shame about their choice or, you know, having to, you know, protect themselves from this judgment about being child-free, would you offer some soulful words? I would say that you're not as alone as you think you are, that there are many people out there myself included, who either struggled to and came to a knowing that that was the right path for them, or who through circumstances, you know, had to come like through infertility or kind of like a tragedy, had to come to being with this reality in their lives. And, and, you know, you can be with it in a kind of like hunker down and just cope and and do other things to distract yourself away. But there are many people who, who take the invitation to transmute what's been offered to them in life. So what I've found when I've started to talk about it is like literally hundreds of people who want to talk to me about how, how they either wished that that had been an option for them or that they wanted to be like that, but they didn't have the, the kind of like support or wherewithal or whatever. To people who are, you know, on the other end, they, they either regret it 
Mm. which I don't hear that much, interestingly enough. I think we kind of, I don't know that we regret something as time passes as much. I mean, if it's not a tragedy, it's not something terrible we did. <laughs> but if you murder someone, you probably regret it. But if, in this realm, to, to people who, you know, wonder what their life might have been like if they'd had children. Yeah. But I would say that that's true of everyone about everything that they do in life that matters. Mm. So whether we do or do not have children, matters. Whether we do or do not engage on a spiritual path, matters. Whether we do or do not get into relationships and love other humans, matters. Whether we do or do not take risk and do the things that we would really love to do, like take the risk to be a writer. That's a huge risk. Society doesn't necessarily want you to do that. We will have many complicated uh, feelings about what's happened in our lives and and that's okay and again paying attention to what's complicated in our responses and our feelings is our path to realizing that we are inherently awake so you cannot make a mistake weirdly there actually is no right or wrong in this realm there is only degrees of paying attention to what's happening and on a sort of less kind of uh spiritual level it does seem to be a place of of empowerment as i'm getting older uh i'm pushing 50 and and i feel a kind of respect and being empowered in not having children that I mean, maybe i just have good people in my life but i i think you know like women up to the present age were respected and empowered based on having children that they were kind of like reduced or pathologized if they didn't i'm noticing as i hit serious midlife that that is not happening with me that is not the case mm. and i'm not regretting uh that i didn't have children mm. just not regretting it and i've noticed many women some of whom it, it happened through infertility who are finding much to their shock they're shocked that mm. they do, don't miss it or regret it yeah there's so much there's so much to life, isn't there? There's there's so many aspects to it. Sorry, and that's to life too. Like that's important to have children in your life. Yes, of course. Interaction with you know the younger generation is so important to our own experience of taking in everything that Earth has to offer. Yeah, and the in older generations as well. And older generations, we all we we're kind of like a really beautiful beautiful setting honestly we are and i feel it more and more as i get more and more spiritually connected now it's about the noise but we could have another conversation about drowning that out or accepting it as you talked about <laughs> but um can, may i ask what your self-care routine is it's something i like to ask my guests i meditate i don't meditate every day usually it averages out to between four and Sometimes it's seven days a week, but it's uh, kind of day by day, what needs to happen that day basis at this point. I've certainly gone through phases in my life where I did meditate every day, but I, I do sit and practice uh, different versions of meditation that uh, have been taught to me through the Vajrayana teachings. I don't practice them on a whim. It's very much uh, what I've been told to do, essentially, um, although I do listen to my own wisdom as well and all of that. Uh, and I do that for about, it's anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour a day. I uh, 
practice of Pilates, take a something called a Feldenkrais class once a week. And Feldenkrais is a sort of movement, like an internally generated movement body of practices by an Israeli man who was a dancer named Moishe Feldenkrais. But what's good about it is that it's very self-connected. It's like yoga, only even um, more specifically about the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very beautiful system. I used to do a huge amount of yoga. Um, I go through phases with it. Um, in fact, I would say my spiritual path sort of started with yoga in a way. I mean, I had these spiritual materialistic parents, but I really started practicing yoga when I was 16, and that led to an actual spiritual practice. And I consider writing as part of my self-care, so I write for or do some kind of work in that realm, the creative realm, a lot. I have the great good fortune to be able to do that between two to four or five hours a day. Oh, wow. I know. But I call them my three sacred acts. I meditate. I move my body, Mm. mind, and heart. And I uh, engage in the question and listening practice of uh, creativity in, in some form every day. Mm. I'm like the fabric of my life at this point. If we were like, it would be very, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's obvious I'm not exercising. Like, you know, (laughs) it does seem like, you know, heart, body, mind movement and Mm -hmm. attending to the present, meditating. They do begin to kind of all mush together a little bit, you know, and you don't want to be fooled into thinking you don't want to do them. And then it's fine to do nothing or to vague out or whatever. Um, but you know, they, they, they tend to, one moves into the other and, and in love, in relationships with other humans, that's true, certainly, obviously of the utmost importance with a child, that, that your, your spiritual practice and your parenting are fluid and interconnected, if not somehow like the same. It's like, how do I, how do you tell the difference between a spiritual practice and having a child? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) No, they're the same. Between writing and a spiritual practice at this point, they are the same. And I also meditate, which supports that view. Mm, Wonderful. Reversing. In a way, like all I do is self care. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Ridiculous, but (laughs) it's wonderful. Um, where can my audience reach you or your work? Or uh, I'm gonna put in the bio, you know, details of uh, a dream of everything and mm-hmm. Lionheart Press is is there, and I think that has your email address. Are you happy for me to put that in there? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, the dream of the drawing for everything. I have my own writer website, which was is actually orange, and then there's a site for Lionheart Press. And they all kind of essentially have the same email on them. But um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to hear from people. And it's interesting, you know, like there's a quality of the self-secret or the self-selective and, and the people who kind of seem to come into my world in that way, right? really in any way, they're usually really remarkable people. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, great. Well, you know, Thank you so much. This has been just lovely and amazing and heartfelt and soulful. So thank you for your time. For me, that episode has been enriching 
on so many levels. I felt centered, soulful, and genuinely happy to be alive at this time in this world and to have encountered this person. Whether you're a human who has chosen to be child-free or a seeker of the truth, there were buckets of soulful wisdom that Crystal so generously and eloquently shared with us. I certainly felt the bliss of being married to my soul a lot more after speaking with her. I hope it achieved the same for you. This is your host, Serafina, leaving you with a little more love for life.